You're listening to 3CR Radio. On today's show, Jonathan Holmes, he returns to talk about his midsummer extravaganza Lunar New Year disco at Melbourne Museum. Playwright Hayley Ricketson from Black Apple Theatre joins us to talk about her one-woman midsummer play Untouchables. And later, Rochelle Johnson and Lynn from Rainbow Rebellion join us to talk about the upcoming religious discrimination rally in Melbourne. 3CR. Joined in the studio by Jonathan Holmes. Welcome. It's crazy out there, you said. It is crazy. Maybe it's the new moon. Maybe it's because it's Lunar New Year tomorrow. So a lot of things going on in the city we call Melbourne. Tell us about Lunar New Year Disco, which you've got happening in early Feb as part of Midsummer at Melbourne Museum. What a great venue, by the way. Yeah, so basically, it's kind of a story of the institution letting us in. We actually rehearse outside. It's really hard because we're kind of like a street dance crew, but we're all super queer. So to find a safe space, I'm putting air quotes on the air, um, to rehearse was really challenging. So we went to the school's entrance. So we wanted covering and people not heckling at us or kind of hitting on us. And then basically thank you to Daniel Sanchinelli, who's now artistic director of Footscray Community Arts Centre, he brokered that relationship that said, can you let them in? Let him wreak havoc consensually. And we're there now, and we're there in two weeks hosting Australia's largest ever whacking battle, which is super exciting. What is a whacking battle? So whacking, I describe it to kind of the regular punter, as we say in arts administration, as like Voguing's cousin. So before, it's just crazy, James, when there wasn't the internet, people had ideas in separate cities. And didn't talk to each other. How crazy. And then they found out later. So as voguing was happening in New York, whacking was happening in Los Angeles. It had similar arm movements and was founded in the disco era. However, every whacker except one passed away to HIV or was murdered between 1979 and 1981. And the only whacker left was Victor Manuel, who I got to meet at his horse ranch just a few months ago. And he used to dance for Grace Jones. It was so, so cool. How did you end up at his horse ranch? I actually got a research grant last year to study safe spaces for queer people of color and just trying to unpack what a safe space meant for me, which I realized I had to kind of find the safe space within myself before I could find a safe space for others. I know that's kind of so like sounds like a weird fable but I had to actually discover what was a safe space in my own body before I kind of predicted that out and so kind of digressing from whacking but whacking as I say voguing is like 2D it's really about the shape and it's really about expressing that feminine or butch quality but with whacking we're trying to tell a story we want to be like Greta Garbo or Marlena Dietrich we want to be these old movie stars just like the original punkers used to do um, in the late 70s is that what drew you to whacking the old movie stars? And actually, I'm originally a, um, a hip-hop dancer. Purely, um, I was born and raised in Hong Kong and then went to Los Angeles, as you know. So I was very much in the Los Angeles hip-hop scene. And honestly, dancing super heteronormative. And I got really over it. I was talking about it. I was on the mic at Honcho Disco yesterday, so I'm very sore. Dancing in five-inch heels on top of a booth. Very bad OHNS, everyone. Sorry. And I just was talking about how I saw that battle. And this, my dear friend, Marnie, who's in the whacking crew, who you will see at the battle on the 7th and she just told this story and I said I have to do that and I've done it ever since there's also a punking dramatics showdown at Lunar New Year Disco. Tell us about that. So totally. We really want, um, because the museum and Midsummer and City of Melbourne and, and Chunky Move, there's so many supporters of this project, which we're so grateful to have institutions welcome in queer people of color. But the punking dramatics is actually more of a historical battle. So punking, I describe it as queer performance drag without moving your lips. So if you're a queer performer out there, you do drag, please come enter the class 
Um, the prize is a five-class pass from Chunky Move, so a $250 prize. So that will be basically kind of a storytelling, and you get assigned a song at random, and you just perform for us in front of Pangina Heels, who is the host and judge of RuPaul's Drag Race Thailand. The winner of the Whacking Battle gets an all-expense pay trip to Taiwan to compete in the Eurovision of Whacking, which is called Sailor Whack, which is hosted every November in Taipei. Where do you get these people from? It's actually our dear, um, we're all part of a community, Burn City Whack, and Andy, who is kind of our crew leader, he is pretty high up the Qantas flight attendant food chain. And so through that, he just got to travel and meet everyone. And so through that, he's just really established really great networks. And a lot of the Asian queer community, um, particularly in Taiwan and Thailand, are so supportive and are kind of really having this bilateral exchange, which I think Australia diplomatically really wants and us as queers want. So I think it's a win-win. The institutions want that kind of Asian-Australian exchange. And here I am, Asian and Australian. Australian now got a permanent residence since the last time I saw you. I probably say I'm Australian and find that kind of dialogue. And I'm so happy that this queer dance can be a way that everyone can come in. And it's also really exciting. It's our first whacking battle ever that is audio described. So we've never done, we've never had people with low vision at one of our dance battles. And so Description Victoria are doing an amazing job researching of how to. Because usually when you're describing movement for blind people, it needs to, you would prepare, you would see choreography. Everything's improvised. So it's going to be very, very interesting how that's going to unravel. Tell us about the after dark access at the museum as well that's going to be provided. Well, I mean, Melbourne Museum, again, has been so amazing and it's part of their nocturnal program. So basically we've kind of jumped into their kind of late night museum program. So you get to see some archival collections. Uh, Melbourne Museum have done an amazing job kind of unpacking what is missing in their collection and understanding and the urgency to have more cutie pocket, more intersectional artifacts. And they're really accountable and transparent about that and get to share those kind of pieces and what is missing and have little chats, um, which I think is really amazing. I think it's also like a lot of institutions are being open with us us and other represented communities and they share that just through a fun way but also share it through quite a radical way by having us all in there so i think the juxtaposition of all these wonderful artifacts juxtapose i just said juxtapose way too many times um with with all of us dancing and of course you get to see pangina heels perform live australian debut so it's really really exciting and also chrissy cho are we going to see you dance at Lunar New Year Disco? Well, I can't I mean, really do be, the battle would... james because then it's, it's it's rigged and we're not into rigged voting you know but surely, you know, you're going to do something spontaneous. I mean, last time we spoke, you danced for eight hours straight at yes, Dermal I Dimensions. I did. You'd be going through withdrawal if you weren't dancing. Oh, I mean, that was Holly Durant dancing for 80 hours. I'm not as strong as Holly Durant, but she is an amazing Pilates teacher that gets me ready. But um, I won't be, I'll probably be on the mic. You'll definitely catch me on the dance floor because we have lots of little breaks. DJ Nara from Tokyo's here doing some amazing spinning tracks. And super exciting that the whole battle while we're on the dance floor is actually live streamed on Hope Street Radio in from Brunswick. So it's going to be super exciting. Tell us about Hope Street Radio. Hope Street Radio, um, it's run by a wonderful guy named Pete Baxter. And basically, I've been really interested in safe spaces and how we access things. And as much as live streams are great on your phone, I feel like you get a bit of FOMO. So I was trying to figure out what's a different way we could share. And usually a dance battle has a great DJ set. So DJ set, what weird accents. But how do we get to share those interesting sets in a, in a new way? And I thought community radio and live streaming and live broadcasting it. I think a lot of us are becoming anti-social media and community radio is really on the rise. So Hope Street Radio is like a pirate community radio station in Brunswick that streams audio. Yeah, well, they're a digital. They're all in mixed cloud. They're at rooftop and heaps of things. 
you can check them out. Just do a little um, mix cloud of Hope Street Radio. My best friend Shannon Mae Powell has some wonderful mixtapes on there. So it's a really fun way. But I think there's a real important urgency with community radio because we're missing connection. And so it's times where you and I get to have this and maybe one queer will get to be out there and feel that connection because sometimes we just can't do it on the phone. Um, another thing I want to share, though, as well, is that we're all part of a program called Queer Unsettled, which is all about having diasporas at the forefront. So there are so many amazing shows, and I wish I could represent all of them. But just on that last weekend alone, there is a Pacifica launch at the convent. Um, of course, we got the Castro Pulse Drag Race title on the Friday. Saturday, JC Tanuvasa, who is a trans from Aotearoa, I'm from Auckland, is absolutely amazing. And she's so sick. You got to see her dance. And then my dear friend, um, Akase Christensen, where Alice Yankadik is um, hosting a Drop Deadly Gorgeous, the first nation's pageant on the sunday so there's so many things with cupox in the forefront and i'm so grateful that midsummer and institutions like the museum have just let us in and let us in on our own terms like as they say fubu for us by us and of course alice has come all the way from canada to perform at midsummer which is pretty awesome yeah yeah yeah. i mean uh, acacia is is living here at the moment and i think all of us really work together we do cute little working bees because obviously we're all just as stressed and we're all trying to sell tickets so we'll like you know talk smack for a few minutes and be like okay let's relax let's go have a coffee let's just like have some hot chips because it's all stressful because midsummer there's so many of us performing and that's the best part of an open access festival there's 194 shows across 19 days so we want to make sure we see everyone's and so i think as much as i want you to see lunar near disco i want you to see all the other events in midsummer too you said you were dancing last night did some oh and s damage tell us more oh my gosh oh well i think again i think as i talk about we were talking about on community radio about like different mediums of how we want access and connection so I felt like could you want to spend money on an Instagram ad or why don't you just perform at Honcho Disco and bring it to the people do you know what I mean I think it's that so you were at Honcho Disco uh, we were at Honcho Disco um, there was all six of us performing but I think we were one of the first acts to ever dance on top of the booth so if you obviously a lot of us are go to the 86 you walk in and there's those booths on the right side and we prepared and we rehearsed but I totally forgot they have this hanging light in the center of the booth so I had to kind of be on my hands and knees a lot but James I've had a lot of practice being on my hands and knees so I think I did an okay job. <laughs> Tell us about the details for Lunar New Year Disco. So it is on February 7th. It's from 7 to 11 p.m. Tell all your friends it is wheelchair accessible, Auslan interpreted, and audio described. Tickets are $27 by the 31st of January. Then they'll be $37 after that. And we have a whole bunch of workshops online. We have a whacking intensive, which is a bit expensive, but is for professional level dancers. And for all our queer performers, the Pangina Heels, he is so amazing. I cannot wait for you to meet him. Is teaching workshops on Saturday and Wednesday and the Wednesday one is Auslan Interpreted and all of them are wheelchair accessible and all of them are a chunky move. And as you can hear, I'm really passionate about access because everyone has the right to be queer and camp and feel good and do some jazz hands. So please come join me. I don't bite hard unless you ask. Jonathan Holmes, always great to chat with you at 3CR. Thanks for popping in. Thank you so much, James. You are an in-your-face on 3CR. Here's Madonna.
Wild Jar and In Your Face on 3CR with James, joined by Hayley Ricketson uh, to talk about her one-woman show, Untouchables, which you're the playwright for. It's part of Midsummer. Uh, you road-tested it in London and it got great reviews. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me in. Tell us about Nadine, who uh, finds an attraction to strip clubs on the way home from work, who, of course, is what the play is all about. Indeed, indeed. Well, she she probably finds less of an attraction to strip clubs than she does to one particular stripper in in the strip club. She we we meet her while she's in the strip club, and she it becomes apparent quite relatively early on that she's infatuated or in love with this woman on stage and so we find out then also that she's a single mother and she's a chef and she kind of slowly feeds us her own story and kind of gives it over to the audience. Of course it's produced by Black Apple Theatre which has a strong feminist focus. Tell us about the intersections with Nadine and feminism. I think the the intersection sort of comes from her being a fairly, you know, without wanting to kind of almost minimise it, but a strong female character, but also someone who's not wanting to be defined by a singular experience. So as a, as a bit of a trigger warning for your listeners, Nadine is a survivor of sexual assault. And there's this sense of her wanting to own her own experience and own her own story and become and be more than just that singular thing. So it sounds like Nadine is surprised that she's ended up at the strip club and has become attracted to this woman. Yeah, yeah. She she sort of, I don't think she necessarily goes through a sort of judgmental process with herself for it, but she's certainly quite taken with how much she feels for this person who has no idea who she is and who Nadine herself knows essentially nothing about she never she never speaks to Kylie the stripper and she never approaches Kylie so it's it's quite a kind of removed but very involved love for her how does it translate to the stage it must be very challenging for the director and the actor tell us about both of them yeah so they've had a very kind of intimate process together kind of uh bringing this thing to life 
which I found because I this actually is adapted from a short story that I wrote years ago, and um, someone suggested adapting it to a to a one woman show, which was a brilliant idea, and I, I really need to thank them for that. But um, they, but I found that there was this whole new sense of responsibility in in adapting it for the stage because you're suddenly putting words in someone's mouth more directly, and you're saying it quite literally to a room full of people. And considering the subject matter, it just sort of suddenly took on this whole kind of, yeah, new responsibility of of sort of giving that over to someone and them embodying it and and the director taking care of that. So they've done they've done a fabulous job just sort of taking care of each other, I guess, in the process and also bringing it together to make it a very kind of striking but sensitive story for an audience. So how did you find them? Name them? How did you find them? Tell us the backstory <laughs> to how this incredible production actually all came together. Well, Cheney, Cheney and I actually, we were um, we did the same undergraduate degree back at um, Monash University. So we both did a Bachelor of Performing Arts and um, we've been good friends and sort of collaborators since. And So Cheney's the director? Cheney is the director, yes. And she is artistic director of Black Apple Theatre as well. So she's, yeah. Yeah, very passionate about bringing to life queer feminist stories and has done so with Black Couple Theatre for the almost 10 years that they've been around now. And um, Alicia is our Nadine. And I I think because I've actually I've actually recently come back from London. I've been living in London for a few years. And before I left, I had a couple of encounters with Alicia where she sort of read for me in a in a scratch night and everything. And she is she is a, just a, a wonderful presence in a rehearsal room and a fantastic presence on stage. So I yeah, I can't wait to see everything she does with Nadine on the stage. What's a scratch night? <laughs> a scratch night is a fantastic um, little invention of, of theatre makers where you can kind of test work out. So there's there's some of them here in Melbourne and like, well, there's plenty here in Melbourne, plenty in London and places. It's just where you can, sometimes they're around a theme. So they might sort of do a theme scratch night around just say queer work or one woman shows. And you can bring like a, a section of a piece to the scratch night and just sort of test it out and get get some people to read it out or or put it in front of an audience and as a piece in development. Is that what you did in London with the Untouchables? In London, it was it wasn't a scratch night. It was it was a full or a bit of a preview production, I might say. So a, a sort of colleague of mine or artistic partner of mine in London, we had both written these one woman shows in isolation of one another but we kind of put them side by side and went oh this is this is a bit interesting these two things kind of complement each other quite well so we decided we would just hang it all and present it as a as a double bill over over two nights um in a in a pub theater in London but that was very much a a sort of she wrote one piece, I wrote the other, I directed them both, she acted in them both and we kind of just, it was a bit of a muck in and we just kind of did everything together and kind of tried to, and pulled it all together, um, just the two of us essentially, which was fantastic and it was a it was a fantastic experience and I think we were both really proud of what we did but it is, it's pretty brilliant kind of having Untouchables here now and getting to have a number of fantastic creative minds in on this show and all bringing their own expertise to it. So what's it like as a playwright letting go and giving this character that you've created and this incredibly intense story to a director and an actor? Is it like a parent that can't let go? Like it must be pretty (laughs) emotional for you. 
Um, yeah, yeah, it can be. It's it's a pretty, you know, it's it's a different experience every time, I think. And um, I think having done it in London actually made it sort of a bit easier to to hand it over, particularly because I have dabbled in directing and I'm, I'm quite sure I don't, you know, that's not what I want to do exactly. And I, I think it's, it's really exciting to, you know, see what someone else, like how somebody else realises something in, in the same, the same world as you. So you sort of bring them into the world that you've created as a writer and then they have their own kind of strengths and skills and imagination and care for it and they kind of can, can bring this whole other dimension to it, which is not to sort of put down any writers who also like to direct their own work because, you know, that can, that can be a fantastic experience as well. But I think it's really exciting to kind of have more people on board or just more more creativity and imagination in the room. And I guess it's perfect for Midsummer because it sounds like Nadine is discovering her queer side at the strip club. She is, yes, yes. And, and um, I thought it would be a good piece for Midsummer, particularly because there sometimes seems to be less of the, the queer female stories there. And that's um, something that Cheney's mentioned to me before as well. So I think it's uh, part of that exciting you know trend we're starting to see of of queer female stories or women kind of exploring their sexuality in a way that doesn't need to be defined by a male or defined in a more like they're not they're not exploring their sexuality in a passive way it's It's interesting isn't it because i mean midsummer has so many plays featuring men Mm. but unlike fringe it doesn't have a lot that 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 features women we had press play last year Mm. but it sounds like your play untouchables is part of a unique group a small group a select group of productions at midsummer that do feature women yeah i mean i don't want to i don't want to sort of um i haven't you know done a full uh reading of the entire program and know them all by heart because i know that there are some some great female driven pieces that are coming out at midsummer but it i guess it yeah it tends to be a bit more in the minority that they're more female focused and and queer and i guess maybe even theater as well there's lots of you know fantastic cabarets or music shows or comedy shows but and this does have a a, a sort of a real um comedic streak in it black humor but it does it does sort of bring a humour to the piece, but it is, you know, a dramatic monologue. Was that hard to write, the black humour that explores a topic as sensitive as surviving sexual assault? I don't find it hard to write, uh, but when I read it back, I do that double take with myself of, oh, am I crossing a line there? Or should I reword that? Should I take that out? But I myself think that there is, there's a humanity in, in bringing humor to to those issues and I think I think there's a real sensitivity to it and I would and that's what I try to sort of employ whenever I'm rereading things and sort of considering it as that real sensitivity to those experiences. So when you read Untouchables back now do you find it teeters on that line like give us a sense of of that of that boundary? I will say she she's probably less it's not it's not a um a really in your face kind of black humor. I would say it's a more subtle black humor and it's a it's a more subtle and honest way of talking about things for Nadine that that sort of allows her to deal with them and 
come to a sort of a place in herself that she's comfortable with them. It sounds like a huge challenge for the actor. It does. It does. Um, I I sometimes, and I think that's also possibly why I shouldn't. I I wouldn't be a, a director. Is that as a writer, I'm probably too. Um, hard on the actor but um I don't know well not hard on the actor but she yeah they they take on a lot I think uh with Nadine but I also like to think that they get to embody a real strong and resilient character in doing that and um hopefully that's that's a fairly empowering experience for them was that why you decided to make it a one-woman show Yes, I think I think it works best as a piece for Nadine and, and sort of about Nadine. I mean, there's always that part of you that kind of goes, ooh, could I turn it into something else? And then also the money-conscious part of you that goes, one person is much, much cheaper than two or three. <laughs> but um, but I, think, I think it's very much Nadine's story and I think containing it within her and her whole expression is kind of, it's a big enough thing in itself. What are you working on in the future? You must have some other plans for, for, for new plays. What's in the pipeline? Well, I'm actually, I will be heading to London again, but only briefly this time because another play of mine, also a, a queer feminist piece, funnily enough, has been offered a, a three-week run at a theatre in London. So heading back there to to take care of that. And then I've I've got a two-hander that I'm also trying to move around at the moment and find a little home for it. The play in London, what's it called? The play in London is called Graceful. And that is also, it's essentially a queer exploration of female sexuality through two women who are thrown into roles they never expected to have to fill for one another. Wow. And you mentioned a two-hander. Tell us about that. So the two-hander is actually about um, two young men, one of which is is transgender and it's a very contained piece as well but contained in terms of time and place. So they're a young man and a young transgender man who are in the waiting room of a sexual health clinic and wow. they get to talking. So you've got a lot of queer stuff happening in your work. I do, I do. Yeah. It seems to be a, a theme of mine. Awesome stuff. So give us those details for Untouchables, produced by Black Apple Theatre, so people can rock along and see it as part of the extraordinary Midsummer Festival, which we're so lucky to have here in Melbourne at the moment. We really are. I went to the carnival on Sunday, and it's just like it's just this massive celebration of um, of that community, which is just so fantastic. So Untouchables is on at the MC Showroom in Paran, and it will be on for two nights on Friday the seventh and Saturday the eighth of February. And you can get tickets online if you follow us at Black Apple Theatre on Instagram and we have a Facebook page. The uh, link to buying tickets pops up every every second post or so at the moment. Awesome stuff. Hayley Rickardson, thank you so much for chatting with us today on 3CR. And congratulations on your play. It sounds truly wondrous. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Hayley Rickardson chatting about Untouchables. Uh, you are an in-your-face on 3CR. Here's Sade, one word.
would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their financial support of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities. A future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more about them, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or find them on Facebook. You are an in-your-face on 3CR with James. Really rapt to have Rochelle and Lynn from Rainbow Rebellion in the studio to talk about their um, rally on the 9th of February here in Melbourne about the federal government's religious discrimination legislation. Welcome to you both. Thanks. Thanks. Where to start, Rochelle? Let's start with you. What's the most hideous thing about this legislation, the most concerning? Everything. <laughs> Basically everything. It's, they're, they're horrible. it's a horrible piece of legislation. It's just from start to finish, it's about uh, religious privilege and the right to the, the right to give one small group of people the right to discriminate against whoever the hell they want to. Obviously, our community often feels the brunt of that, but it's not just our community either. And I think it's really important that we're conscious of that, that, yeah, there's been a lot of talk about how these bills are going to impact our community, and that's gen- they're genuinely a really a real concern. But let's not forget um, dis- disability communities. Let's not commit other c- commit forget <laughs> other minority communities. Let's not 
particularly let's not forget how it's going to inf- impact communities around, uh, particularly uh, women who've experienced violence, family violence especially. Um, there's huge implications f- for that, and which also intersects with our community because, you know, we already know how hard it is already for gender-diverse women or femme-presenting gender-diverse people to access services in that space, and this will just make it even easier for them to be discriminated against. Lynn, I know you're very concerned about the impacts on women fleeing domestic violence situations under this legislation. Tell us about those concerns. Yeah, so a lot of refuges are run by religious groups. So if they have the legal ability to say, I'm not going to help you because you're a single mum, I'm not going to help you because you're a lesbian, I'm not going to help you because you're trans, then that's going to actually put more lives at risk. We've got approximately one woman a week killed in Australia, cops are getting calls every two minutes for family violence incidents. And the Royal Commission into Family Violence said that there needed to be more refuges, more spaces available, and this is just doing the opposite. So it sounds like that's something that's really kind of, you know, not been analysed and explored, the very high rate of refuges run by religious organisations. Yes, yep. Um, So I think it's about 95% of them are run by religious organisations. And I know that when a woman leaves, Safe Steps gives them crisis accommodation. They could be sitting in hotels for weeks with no emotional support in an area they don't know. They can't tell anyone where they are. They just are very isolated, which heightens the risk of them returning to a perpetrator. Rochelle, tell us about some of the concerns for the trans community in relation to the federal government's religious discrimination. Where do I start? <laughs> Where do I start? I think, look, I think there, there's a whole lot of concerns. I think, um, you know, the trans communities, we've been copping it for years. That's a reality. Uh, it increased with the plebiscite. After the plebiscite, it didn't actually slow down. But in the last 12 months, it's got really bad. You know, um, you look at the, what the Murdoch Press has published in the last six months, there's probably at least 50 articles that there, that have been anti-trans, particularly targeting trans children. And on the back of that is a, we have this situation where we already have a narrative that's anti-trans in the community. And, I mean, it's easy to walk around Melbourne feeling like I'm in a pretty safe bubble. But the reality is it's not always safe. Walking around Melbourne some days is actually a real risk. Um, that's reality. Um and now we want to throw into this 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 idea that someone can say something like that and say, well, that's my religious conviction. It's my my statement of faith in good faith. It's a statement of belief in good faith. So I can say that to you and you can't do anything about it. It doesn't matter how it impacts you. It just matters that I have the right to say it. Following on with that, the other, like, that's just the general stuff, I think, that's just out in the narrative Further to that is some of the really specific stuff around um, access to medical services. And it doesn't just impact the trans community, it also impacts uh, reproductive health. It's another example where that's really, really critical. Um, the idea that, uh, that a health professional, whether it be a doctor, a pharmacist, a counsellor, whatever, can refuse to see, to provide service on the basis of, I have a statement of belief that you're broken, you're wrong, your identity is not acceptable. You're an abomination. Whatever language they use, you know, we, we've all heard the language over and over and over in our community for years and years and years. Um, but the fact that that, that is a defence for why you can't, um, why you won't provide a service for someone, you know, like, yeah, sure, you can say, hey, go to another doctor. But that doesn't actually um, take into account the damage that's done in that situation. Also fails 
absolutely totally fails to consider the fact that we don't all live in the city. We don't all we can't all just go. Okay, I'll find another doctor or I'll find another chemist. Sometimes they're the only chemist that can provide that. And if you're a trans person going into a chemist to get a script filled, and your chemist says, "I'm sorry, you're trans. I think you're a sinner, so I'm not going to serve you." Um, you can be, you know, where are you left? What can you do? It's, um, you know, the and the fact that in the bill's explanatory notes, the provision of hormones is the example they give. But one of the one of the examples they give around the kind of a conscientious objection that can be made. But then they try to make this thing about, oh, no, it means that you, you have to deny the procedure to everyone. But we don't provide hormones to everyone for the treatment regime of cross-sex change. You know, there's lots of reasons why we provide hormones. So the actual justification for what the treatment is will be, they'll use that as a way of saying, I'm just going to deny, justifying denying service to the trans community will be, oh, well, this is a particular treatment. It's not a general treatment. So providing providing hormones is not a general treatment. There are specific treatments for which you provide those hormones. So it's a bit of a ramble, but um, it's actually a really, it's a real key concern that, um, you know, we, we're already a vulnerable community. You know, we're already a community that when we don't have support, 49% of us have suicide ideation. That's just the reality. It's a shocking statistic, I know, but it is just the reality of, of what our community is. You know, I I walk around this city pretty safe. I'm pretty tough. But that doesn't exclude the fact that, you know, just today I was walking through Southern Cross and called a tranny and called a freak and shoved, be, shoved from behind. You know, it happens. That's the reality. That's the community. That's the space that we exist in, um, and this bill is just going to make it easier for that stuff to happen. Lynn, you must be concerned about the impacts on women in regional areas fleeing domestic violence situations. Yeah, so um, women are normally held back in regional areas anyway. It's a very male-dominated area. And under these bills, women are going to find it harder to leave, harder to find work because people can say, no, nah, um, I don't accept a woman in the leadership role because that's my religious belief. A single mum, having just left a violent relationship, when she drops her kids at school or daycare or kinder, she can be told every day, you're a sinner, you, you're denying your child a dad, you're going to go to hell. And that hearing that over and over again will cause massive mental health problems. And... You know, the Morrison government just really doesn't care about women. That's obvious. Um, and it's just going to get worse and worse for women as well. So it sounds like the Prime Minister needs to show some leadership and also take some responsibility for the consequences that this legislation is already causing people, hasn't even yeah. been passed. But just the fact that it's being debated must be doing huge mental health damage to all sorts of people, not just in the LGBTIQ community, but people beyond, like you touched on, Lynn. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I've spoken to friends of mine who have said our boss is rubbing it in our faces that he can say what he wants to us when these bills are passed. They're not wanting to go to work. They're getting quite depressed. It's taking time away from their families. And, you know, besides that, Scott Morrison's cut the only Indigenous domestic violence helpline in Australia. He's cut that completely. So women... Indigenous women in rural communities have nowhere to go. So there's a strong racist element to this legislation. Yes. Yeah, it's really it's very much about white 
conservative evangelical Christianity. I mean, that, that's what it's about. It's about privilege, privileging that space. And in the end, you know, really, let's be honest, Gomez just got to go. Um, just got to get, however we can get rid of him, like, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if the Governor General would come in and do a golf on him? But um, I don't think that's going to happen. But the reality is, you know, this is one of his pet. This is one of his pets, you know. We all know, we all saw the photos of him in church with his arm in the air praying and we've all seen him sending thoughts and prayers. We've all seen this dialogue from him. This is his pet project. Uh, in his opinion, his community of Christians laughably are oppressed. You know, I've never seen anyone less oppressed, but, you know, that's what it is. That, that um, As far as him throwing, showing leadership, the best leadership he could show right now is just to resign. Do you think he's clouded by his own religious views and that's oh, why he's absolutely. pushing this? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you, you can't get past the fact that he's a, he's a Pentecostal with a very much a um, end times kind of theology, and which means, you know, he'll have this, he has, I think he has this idea, you know, they have this idea about the rapture and, well, you know, at the end of the world, the end times, the, the faithful will rise and the rest of us will be stuck behind. And so from, he, he considers himself one of, the, one of the faithful, so he'll be fine. Um, whatever happens. And I think we see that, we definitely see that in his response, not just to these issues, but look at the response to into the bushfires, look at his response to Indigenous issues, look at his response to so many things. He just doesn't care. He stands, where we, stands there with that ridiculous smirk on his face and has, you know, I mean, for, for goodness sake, he has an empathy consultant to try and make him look like he actually cares and he still does can't he really? do it. Yeah. yeah, he Pam does. Scott. Yeah. Pam Scott from the block. Is really? He, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How bizarre. I know, right? <laughs> and how kind of, you know, alarming that a politician actually needs an empathy consultant. Like, wouldn't that be a major selection criterion for the job? One would think so. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, Lynn, tell us about Rainbow Rebellion, which is putting on the rally in, in protest about this legislation here in Melbourne on the 9th of February. Yeah, so we're a group of people. Um, it's led by Ros Ward, who's the co-creator of Safe Schools, and Ali Hogg, who was... Everyone knows Ali. Yeah, just everyone knows Ali. And people like Ro and myself and a few others that just are really worried about these bills. So we decided to hold rallies. We held two last year and we've got the rally coming up. A great selection of speakers will be announced Do tell. really soon. Really we soon. Can't tell yet. We can't tell. That they will be announced soon, though. Um, there will be some great speakers, and yeah, it's um, it's really we've got about fifteen thousand expressed interest in in attending this time. So we're hoping that we're starting to see a groundswell of um, resistance. So this is part of a series of rallies that are going to be happening every few months in Melbourne. Yeah, I guess we'll have to watch this space. Um, I hope so, because I think that's what we need. But I think there's a lot of rallies going on at the moment. We're seeing a lot of um, rallies around bushfires, around climate change, around that. So I think balancing the ability and the capacity for people to show up is really important. I mean, I think people should show up regardless. But reality is we do have lives and we do have to live and we have to we make choices about the things that we rock up for. So I think we, we have to be strategic about this, but we, we just have we do have to have, whether it's on rolling rallies or whether it's other methods of um, rallying and protesting, we, we have to keep the fight up because we can't let this go through. If we if this goes through, what else will we roll back? You know, what will will we see uh, you know, will it give them more impetus to go, well, let's roll back marriage equality? You know, will it give them impetus to change, to, to recriminalise gay sex? You know, like, this is like, this is really dangerous. This legislation is so damn dangerous that um, to, to give 
uh, a so-called secular de- democracy, a religious privilege for a particular class of people to impose their will upon others. I mean, we've always had religious freedom in this country. We don't need a bill to give us that. And religious freedom is about a person of faith having that freedom to express that faith and practice that faith in their lives. It's not Religious freedom is not about being able to impose that faith and impose the rules of that faith or the so-called rules of that faith onto people, onto everyone else around you. Lynn, give us the details where people can go to, to learn more about the campaign and Rainbow Rebellion. Yep, look up Rainbow Rebellion on Facebook. We've got a Facebook page, we've got an event page and then come down to the State Library at 1pm on the 9th of February. And jump onto the Facebook page. There's a post there about badges. You can proudly wear a Homos Against ScoMo badge. Um, cost you 12 bucks to get three badges, two with rainbow, one Rainbow Rebellion, one Rainbow Rebel, and one Homos Against ScoMo. 13 bucks on the Etsy site. It'll help us keep to continue to, to activate um, and put on more events, whether they be rallies or whatever. Um, you know, it costs money to put these rallies on. We're all doing it off the out of you know off the side of our desks as it were we don't have we're not being no one's paying us to do this we're doing it because it's important and uh, you know in this country there should be no right to discriminate indeed lynn and roe from rainbow rebellion thank you so much for joining us today on 3cr thanks for having us in
Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.